You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Hi there, it's Kevin Flood. I'm on the Classic Car Show from America's Web Radio. And today's guest is Richard Dredge. Since 1997, Richard has been an accomplished motoring journalist, photographer, author of a number of books, web content creator, magazine contributor. Um, what don't you do, Richard, I guess? <laughs> yeah, I, I try to keep myself busy. And I think that we're very lucky in the UK that we've got a really thriving car scene whether that's classic cars or modern cars people love their cars and that enables me to uh, have my fingers in a lot of pies indeed yeah um when did you get get the car bug i guess would be the first question that i would have for you september 1982 <laughs> i can be that specific i uh, i started secondary school in 1982 and i went to this school and i got pally with a, a guy who had a, an uncle, and this uncle was a mechanic, and he used to get car magazines, and he would pass them on to my friend, and he'd bring them into school, and I would pour over them. And my parents never bought magazines, so I, I'd never seen them before. Brought in auto car and motor and car, and it had all these exciting things that I'd not seen before, and I thought, oh, okay. And the next month, so in October 1982, my dad took me to the NEC Motor Show, which, of course, was the International Motor Show. It was a very big event back then, and there was lots of glitz and glamour. started to collect literature, uh, well, sales brochures specifically, and that made me decide that this was what I wanted to really get into. And like a lot of car nuts, I suppose, I'm not really very happy just tinkering around the edges. I need to throw myself in and kind of be a bit of a, a know-all, buy lots of magazines and, and read up and be a bit of a an anorak. And that's what I decided to do, aged 11. So I started buying magazines, started collecting literature. And uh, that was really how I ended up writing about cars and uh, photographing them. Great. What was the, what was the first um, classic that caught your eye? Well, when I was 15, my mum, uh, two garages, and she lent one of them over the winter to a friend of hers who had a Triumph Herald. Triumph Herald uh, was a convertible, like any 60s classic uh, convertible. It leaked like a sieve, and, you know, it wasn't really suitable for leaving outside over the winter. So her so friend said, could I borrow your garage for the winter? And he brought it over, and as he put it away, he said to me, these are wonderful. You can buy them very, very cheaply. You can run them on a shoestring. You can maintain them very easily. They're great fun. Uh, so that was when I was 15. So when I was 16, for my birthday, I got a Triumph Herald, which I immediately took apart and then rebuilt over a, a few years. And so in terms of the first classic that properly caught my eye, it was, it was a Triumph Herald. Um, and I've now got a Vitesse, which I've owned for 24 years. The Herald went and the Vitesse came along in 1992, and that also I completely restored, and, and I've still got it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, over the years, lots of other classics have caught my eye, of course. I was going to say, um, funnily enough, I've, my wife's got, well, I've got a Herald that I got for my wife. It's the red and white, two-tone, standard-looking 1200, but um, it was her favourite car when she was younger as well, and I bought it as a present for her a few years back, so I can I can certainly uh, concur with the leaking like a sieve car, <laughs> no matter what I do to it. That isn't um, exactly watertight. The one no. that I've got now isn't exactly watertight. Actually, if you could um, explain the Vitesse to our listeners, actually, because um, they didn't get the Herald in the States,
Vitesse particularly. We saw I've seen one or two on Hemmings, but not many. But I, I've not seen many Vitesses over there, so that'd be a nice. Well, the Vitesse, the Vitesse wasn't sold in America as the Vitesse. It was sold as the Sport Six. Yeah. So uh, the the Herald was it's claimed the last mainstream production car that was built um, in the UK at chassis because in 1959 when it came out, uh, you know monocoques or unibodies were the norm. And Triumph came up with this of creating a car on a separate chassis, which enabled them to create spin-offs much more easily, which is how we had the Spitfire and the GT6, which were basically on much the same chassis. And they had this um, this kind of Meccano uh, setup, really, whereby you had this mix-and-match approach to car construction. So they had a certain number of engines, gearboxes, back axles, uh, suspension and brake components, and they would create a bespoke body. So with the Spitfire, it was a two-seater convertible six. It was the hatch version, uh, albeit with the six-cylinder engine, which was taken from the Vitesse. Um, and so you ended up with a few key models which shared all their basic components, really. And in America in the uh, 60s, when the Vitesse was launched in the UK, it was shipped over to America. And it proved reasonably popular as the Sport 6. And and it was simply a six-cylinder version of the Herald. So the Herald was uh, a 12 or 1300cc uh, engine, uh, four cylinders. And then Triumph decided to make it a little bit sporty um, and put this very smooth 1600, uh, a 1.6-litre six-cylinder engine in it, in it. And that came out in 1962 or three, I forget now. Um, and then uh, they did a two-litre version. And it's a two-litre version which uh, is the most common, and it's what I've got. Um, but I've put a two-and-a-half-litre engine in mine out of the TR6. Mm. So the TR6 is basically the same engine. Because right, uh, I must admit, I actually went out with a girl once only because she had a GT6 uh, and ended up doing the head gasket on it for my suits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they tend to leak like a sieve. Actually, head gaskets aren't too prone to failing. It's not a particular weakness of these cars. But, um, yeah, things like uh, the front suspension collapsing if you don't grease it or uh, oil it, I should say, and... Um, Lots of corrosion, of course, as, as cars of the time always corroded. There's, yeah. there's plenty of foibles that these cars have. Indeed. They've got a, a real charm about them, though, haven't they, I think? it's um, Every time I take the, the Herald out, everybody points and smiles, and particularly youngsters. Um, so, the thing about so. the Herald is uh, pretty much every, either know somebody who's got one, or they know somebody who had one, mm. or they learnt to drive in one, or they used to have one, um, it just seems that they have so many people's lives. And, of course, most people don't get the difference between a Herald and a Vitesse. A Herald had two headlights uh, and a Vitesse has four headlights. That's the easiest thing. Them. But from the back, you can't really tell that easily. And a lot of people will say, oh, I had a Triumph Herald, except, of course, it's not a Herald. Um, and it just seems like it was a, a car that was very, very popular. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I know I can remember from years ago for our American listeners here, the British School of Motoring actually used the Herald as quite a quite a key car in their driving schools. The thing about the Herald was it had very light controls, uh, and what was particularly useful about it was that it had amazing thin pillars, and you had pretty much all-round visibility, and you had a very, very tight turning circle, yeah. um, 24 and a half feet, apparently. And as a result, it was very manoeuvrable, and you had great visibility, and therefore driving schools tended to use the Herald. It was the car of choice. So lots of Heralds with dual controls. Um, and I'm sure lots and lots of people of a certain age passed their tests in Triumph Herald. They do. I mean, I'm six foot four, and I have a bit of a problem <laughs> getting. Beyond. I'm five foot seven. I can fit into anything. <laughs> That's the only thing. Well, um, 
what other cards do you own currently, classic-wise? Well, I've uh, I've got a car which I absolutely adore, and I think it's a classic. It's a Mercedes W124, mm. so that's the E-Class from, uh, from the mid-90s. Now, I think it's a classic because they were very expensive when you... They're very stylish, I think, and because they're expensive, they're quite rare. And also, um, of the cars that were brought into the UK... Most were the four-cylinder engine, the E220, but just a handful of the E320 with the bigger straight six. Now, mine's got the bigger. Um, it's done 150,000 miles. It looks like new. It drives like new, and it's a fabulous machine because you can just you can pile people and luggage into it, drive off across a continent, and it's just unbelievably comfortable and practical mm. and reliable. Um, it's, it's a wonderful car. So, uh, And it is a 1994 car, so it's getting on a bit. It's 21 years old. So uh, that's in my very small collection of classics alongside the Vitesse. And then alongside that, I've got a car which I always hankered after. It's a beautiful-looking car. American listeners probably won't know what it is because I'm pretty certain that none would ever have got, got as far as the US. But it's, it's, in the UK, it was sold as a Renault A610. In Europe, it was sold as an Alpine A610. Mm. Um, so it's a 2 plus 2 glass-fibre-bodied, rear-engined French supercar, did about 170 miles an hour, um, turbocharged, 3-litre V6 engine. Um, it was produced between 1992, I think, and 1995, when Alpine closed down, and they only brought 67 into the UK, and they only made about another 900 or so in total. So they're quite rare. Um, not all of them survive. Um, not especially sought after, because they're quite unusual, um, a lot of people haven't even heard of the Mark. So I've got a very rare French supercar, a very usable German convertible, and not so usable British four-seater convertible, um, and that's my small collection. But I've got a qu- quite a few more on my wish list. What is your wish list currently? Well, if I'm honest, I'm not sure I would buy a, a, a properly old car again, uh, a 50s or even a 60s possibly, unless it was very much a toy that I wasn't going to use that much because... Mm. I've got into the habit of, of going further afield in my cars, going to Europe, for example, wanting to carry luggage, wanting to go whatever the weather, not having to worry about lubricating joints or, um, you know, water leaks and that kind of thing. But, I mean, I'd love an MGA. I think MGAs are beautiful cars. Um, and I also quite fancy something pre-war, uh, like a Morris 8 or a Ford Model A Roadster, um, quite quite like my convertibles. Well, just um, to tell you, I've actually got uh, a 1929 Model A Sport Coupe. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, it's uh, came in from the states um, in in a bit of a state, really, but it's um, I'm getting there with it gradually. So, uh, so that's one. Well, that's, that's very good value. You. I mean, I've, the thing is, what I, I work for quite a lot of the classics that are, that are around, um, and I've done. I specialise in buying guides. Uh, so I've done buying guides for Octane and, and Practical Classics and Classic Motoring and Classic Car Weekly over the years. And I've just found that every time I do a buying guide, I think, actually, this just seems like incredible value at the moment and they'll never be cheaper and, you know, you focus on the good. And I've done a lot of guides over the years that I've thought, quite fancy one of those. Hmm. And, and that's how I ended up with an Alpine A610. Uh, I did one thing I ever wrote uh, was on that, and, and everything seemed to be good. Um, but also on that wish list is a Di Tommaso Pantera. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm getting into the more modern stuff nowadays, so 
I've just done a piece on the Porsche 968 for somebody, and I quite fancy a 968 now, BMW 8 series. Um, you know, the more usable Grand Tourers and sports cars from uh, the 80s, I, uh, they're just incredible value, and they're very usable now. What I don't hanker after, which is unusual, is the real top-end stuff, Lamborghini, Ferrari, Aston Martin, um, because I think they're just kind of a bit too obvious now, and the prices have generally got way too high. And uh, I guess if you've got this wish list, um, high value shouldn't preclude a car from being on there. But I don't know. It's not that I don't like them. It's not that I wouldn't accept one if you chose to give me one. But if I had a certain amount of money available and a certain amount of garage space, um, I'd be focusing on um, probably more affordable cars that are great value and, and, frankly, more usable. Yeah, that's one thing um, with a lot of listeners and also the co-presenters of this show. Um, they don't quite understand the garage space situation over here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've just had a new garage built. I had a double oh. garage and I just had another double garage built. So I've got four spaces and that's it. I've got to restrict myself to four. So I could buy another one. So I've got my three classics and I'm toying with the idea at the moment of maybe uh, a Mercedes R129, which was the... SL that came out in 2000 and, uh, sorry, in 1989 it came out mm-hmm. until 2001. Time for a break on the Classic Car Show. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, and I'm speaking to classic motoring journalist Richard Dredge. And a 500SL R129 would be rather nice, but I'm not sure about the idea of having two Mercedes convertibles from the same kind of period. I don't think that's 
going to happen probably. But uh, having just done this Porsche 968 piece, I'm thinking, yeah, they're good value at the moment. I quite fancy one of those. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting because I mean, uh, uh, on the the storage space situation in this country. I mean, I've got uh, a Chevy truck. I've got the Herald, which is down my dad's garage, and I've got my Model A, which is in my garage here. So it's, I, I, I hanker after moving out of, because um, I live in Reading, so I hanker out of moving out a little bit and having a proper garage workshop situation where I can have more cars. <laughs> yeah, well, I live in the Midlands where, where basically people could afford to have a bit of space. If I lived yeah. down your neck of the woods, I wouldn't have another double garage in my front garden. That's... Uh, surrendous. <laughs> yeah. What, um, what classics have you owned previously? I've only had my Herald. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, when I got my, sorry, when I was 16, I got the Herald, and I restored that, and that went on the road. That got destroyed soon after I finished it when someone drove into it, and I bought the Vitesse. I don't like getting rid of cars, so what I tend to do is buy and keep. So if, I, if the Herald hadn't been destroyed, I would probably have that instead of the Vitesse. Um, I mean, in the past, I had some transfer claims, which were rebadged Hondas, um, as everyday cars, I had a Metro when I first passed my test. Uh, again, that wouldn't have got over to the, to the US. Mm. Um, and I've actually owned very, very few cars over the years because I hate selling them. And as I say, I buy them and I keep them and I've only got so much space. So if I was to buy more classics, I would probably have to get rid of something I've currently got and I'm not inclined to do that. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in a similar situation, actually. I, I Once I've got them, I like to keep them, and um, it, it is uh, it is difficult. Do you, I mean, as someone who produces buyer's guides, what would your um, advice be these days? Would you buy, uh, suggest someone buys a car to restore it, or would it be better to buy one that's already restored, in your well, opinion? Well, it, it, it's pretty much always the latter. Mm. The thing is, if you're doing the work yourself, you might might just about break even on most cars but even then you probably wouldn't by the time you've bought a few panels and maybe bought some parts to rebuild a gearbox or an engine bright work maybe had a retrim the chances are that you're going to be looking at a at a, at a loss now the, the, the problem is there's a fundamental issue with the classic car scene i think and i i, I suspect this is universal but it's certainly a case in the uk when somebody buys a classic car they don't expect to make a loss on it. They expect to make a profit. And they, they're not prepared to put money into their car if they don't think they'll get it back. Now, obviously, there are lots of exceptions to the norm, but that is the norm. Most people who buy a mainstream classic car, you know, a, a Triumph or an MG or a Ford or a Vauxhall, what they won't do is buy a project for a th- spend £10,000 on doing it up and end up with a car at the end that's worth four or 5000 they're not they just won't do it even if they're not doing it to sell they don't want to do it and know that the car is worth less than it owes them and that's a real shame because hobbies cost money and i'm quite fastidious with my cars all of my cars are mint inside and out and i've spent money on making them so um and and you know i get more pleasure out of using them not because i polish them or show them but because when i use them i don't want them to break down um, and I want to be able to, you know, go where, anywhere I like, whenever I like, and, and know that they'll be reliable. So I get into my cars on the basis that I'm not going to sell them, so it doesn't matter what they owe me or what they're worth. Very few people have that approach. And if you have the same approach as me, and you have the time and the skills and the inclination, then buying a restoration project can be incredibly satisfying. You know the work's done properly. 
uh, as long as you've got the facilities, the space to do it, the tools to do it, the, the skills. It's, it's a fantastic way of spending some time, and it's, it's incredibly satisfying to see the result. But most people don't have the time or the skills or the inclination. And what's happening now is that the classic car market is focused very much in terms of condition. And what we're finding is that if you take a mainstream mark or model, average examples are worth generally not very much. But mint examples can be worth significant sums because people will pay a premium for a car that doesn't need any work doing. So, in fact, the Triumph Vitesse is a good example. You can buy a very average example for three or four thousand pounds. Um, you know, maybe five thousand something is really quite tidy. But we're now seeing these cars touching twenty thousand pounds, eighteen to twenty thousand for the best example. That's unheard of. They always had a, a plateau of ten thousand until very recently. But people have realised if they spend eighteen on the very best car they can find and it needs nothing whatsoever, that will cost them less than buying a five thousand pound car and trying to get it up to the standard of that eighteen thousand pound car that you know they've got the option of buying. And that's, that's the same with the Rover P6s and Rover P5s and Ford Escorts and Capris. Um, a mint car will be worth often four or five times what just an average car is worth because labor charges are so high that by the time you've restored the bodywork of a car, you, know, you, you restore a Jaguar Mark II body shell, for example, um, and you, know, you sort out the mechanicals, and that can be 60 to 80,000 pounds for restoration. A car at the end of it might be worth 40 to 50. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting um, point because um, I, my Model A, I know that I'll never get back what I'm going to put into it. Yeah. But that's not what I've um, got it for. You know, I, I always wanted one and I managed to find one and import it. And, you know, it's it's a pain. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the, the, know, the real I problem it. is that, and, and in fact, I'm kind of the living proof of it, really, in that the Herald that I got when I was 16, I bought it was supposedly roadworthy. It had a, a certificate, an MOT certificate, saying it was roadworthy. I actually bought it to tear it away, and when we when I tore it apart, it was pretty clear that it wasn't roadworthy. The chassis was absolutely rotten, um, and it would have been hideously unsafe. So I spent uh, well nine thousand pounds doing it all up, um, and that was a lot of money for Triumph Herald back then. Bearing in mind it was destroyed in 1992, and the top book price for a Herald at that time was about 3000 and I think I had mine insured for four, but it cost me nine. And when somebody drove into it and destroyed it, completely destroyed it, I got £4,000. That was within weeks of finishing the rebuild. Um, you know, I spent nine grand on it and made an instant loss of five. And I suppose people have that in their mind of, well, if they sink a lot of money into a project and they can't insure it for what it's cost them, but only for what the market value is, then they don't want to drive it around in case it gets destroyed. And it happens. Yeah, it certainly does. What's your um, uh, experience of the parts supply now these days in terms of Triumphs, etc.? Um, I've, I've found that the quality of parts is um, obviously going downhill in terms of sort of foreign parts coming into the, into the market. Yeah, it's an interesting topic, really, because... I have to talk to specialists a huge amount, people who restore cars, people who sell cars, and a lot of them are saying that the parts supply situation is better now than it has been for a very long time. And Triumph's a good example of that. When I rebuilt my Vitesse, which went on the road in 1996, so virtually 20 years since it was finished, 
the part supply situation was okay. You were more likely to find original parts than you can now, but that was very hit and miss. Repro parts were few and far between. Now, there's a huge array of repro parts, and a lot of them are very good. A lot of them are very well made. And in fact, a lot of the specialists who are remanufacturing parts are incorporating upgrades in terms of materials. And so you're more easily able to buy good parts now than ever, really. But also, because there are so many more parts available, a proportion of those parts aren't very well made. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes it's panels which don't fit very well. Um, a lot of the times it's rubber stuff. So, for example, uh, where you've got rubber gaiters, rubber seals, what seems to be happening now is that these repro parts have lots of rubber uh, components which perish within less than a year. So our roadworthiness certificate, which is the MOT, um, you get the car to the MOT the one year having put some new parts on it, and then by the next year you have to put or replace those parts again because the rubber parts have perished. Mm. Um, and I, I know of somebody, a friend of mine, who runs a triumph specialist near me, and he now has to take a part original uh, track rod ends to try and get the rubber components out of them to use those rubber components in the new track rod ends because the rubber components in the, in the repro less than a year yeah it's, it's uh, insane. a friend of mine has uh, got a herald convertible as well and he um he recently had a, a hell of a job with a steering rack uh and he was having all kinds of problems fitting it and eventually took it out and it was it's out completely out of spec and it was apparently made in argentina or somewhere <laughs> and it, it was it was quite a premium priced item as well but it just was completely out of spec um so yeah, it, and this is the thing there's, there's a lot of parts coming into the uk and let's face it if you've got a, a, a chance of buying an out of spec argentinian made steering rack or nothing at all yeah. then you're going to go for the argentinian part assuming especially if you're paying a lot of money assuming that it's fit for purpose and the problem is that I, I i don't know and it's not something i've written about but i would assume that there's no certification for these parts coming into the uk or to the us or wherever now i'm guessing that you can set up a factory in argentina churn out parts and, and ship them through to whichever country you like and they'll be sold on it's not like new cars where you have type approval and where things have to be tested Mm. Like you're, I mean, you're all moving in the circles of specialists, etc. I'm assuming now for Triumphs, etc., the new old stock situation is now nearly exhausted. It's really interesting that that it seems to be in some cases better than ever. I know I'm very good friends with two or three Triumph specialists, and there's a huge array of new old stock because even now old dealerships are closing down. Uh, you know, people are um, finding caches of parts, but generally their parts that aren't necessarily that hard to find anyway. So there'll be things like maybe, I don't know, timing chains or oil filters, engine components. What people really want are bright work, so they'll want the, the chrome trim, they'll want um, maybe interior trim, certainly trim panels and seats, they'll want original panels. And it seems to be that those are the things that aren't coming to light so much. Um, but funny enough, I've just done a, a feature on the Austin Mac for uh, Practical Classics over here, and the Austin Maxi will never be worth very much. It was always a car for people on the budget, um, and you know, they're not very sought after. They'll probably never be very sought after. And so remanufacturing parts for the 
small number of maxis that are left doesn't make economic sense. Uh, you just couldn't tool up uh, economically. Mm. So they're reliant on new old stock generally, or parts that were fitted to other cars that will also fit the maxi. Yeah, but the maxi's been out of uh, production for 34 years or 30, I think it was 1980, 1981, mm. the last one was made. So obviously 35 years theory all the parts are dried up and what what the club is telling me is actually quite often you'll get a cache of doors turn up or front wings or um things that have been unavailable for years and these things just crop up from nowhere somebody will find a cache of them in a barn or something and it does seem that there's still a lot of stuff tucked away out there but i was talking to i won't name names because that would be unfortunate but it is a brand that uh, isn't sold in America as such. And um, I was talking to a guy from this, this brand saying, you know, you don't get into the classic car press that much because parts for your classic cars are really hard to find. It's time for a break on the classic car show. We'll be right back after these messages. I'm Pat Rulo, hostess of Speak Up and Stay Alive, patient safety radio, heard on America's web radio every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Now you and your loved ones can stay safe from little-known health care and hospital hazards. Join me Thursdays at 9 a.m. or listen to my podcasts on americaswebradio.com. For more information, visit speakupandstayalive.com. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, and I'm speaking to classic motoring journalist Richard Dredge. Supported your 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 classic cars very much, your heritage arm, um, um, and because there are very few specialists, because there are very few parts, you don't get much classic car coverage. And this person disclosed to me that within the last he didn't specify a period, but it's clearly within the last couple of years they had been destroying vast quantities of mechanical uh, parts and and panels, even though there was a classic specialist for this brand ready to take them off their hands and put them in a warehouse and sell them as and when there was demand. They chose not to sell them to him, but to destroy them instead. Hmm. And these are are parts that would have kept the cars going, you know, a lot longer. And, And that's the second time within the last year that I've heard that uh, big brands are choosing to destroy parts rather than sell them on to people who will who will just stockpile them and sell them as, they, as there's a demand. That's really sad. It's also um, kind of related a little bit from our version of Cash for Clunkers. You see uh, piles of minis and various other vehicles sitting on airfields waiting to be crushed and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's kind of a weird situation, really, isn't it? It's, there are lots of weird situations in our world, and one of them is exactly that. It's cars being scrapped. And the, the problem is, as I said earlier, very few people want to buy a project. And one of the magazines I write for is Classic Car Weekly, which is the UK's biggest-selling classic car title. It's, been, been, it's very long-established, and it has a readership that is very knowledgeable 
And uh, clearly, going by the letters page is quite opinionated sometimes, which is great because we want debate. And generally, they are very, very much against the idea of banger racing. And Classic yeah. Car Weekly will tackle the subject of banger racing every so often. And I, I need to just qualify, qualify that bad. for a second. Um, for our American listeners, uh, what Richard's talking about in your parlance is demolition derby. <laughs> okay, okay, so demolition derby. Now, the thing is that there's... There are a lot of cars that are no longer roadworthy, are no longer economically viable to restore, and you know there are only so many people out there who want to bring an Austin Maxi or an Austin Cambridge or a Ford Cortina back from the dead. And what happens is that the banger racers will acquire these cars and they will race them, and the cars will be destroyed in the process, and that's that. And there are lots of people that shouldn't be allowed. These cars should be being restored. The problem is there's nobody who wants to restore them. And so it is a shame that these cars bite the dust, but unfortunately, that's the way it is. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, I mean, my dad had a Maxi, he had a Cambridge. So they're all very much the working man's car as well. So they weren't really particularly desirable. And um, it's, like you say, as long as somebody uses them for something... um, I think it's fine. I mean, like you say, there's not a great groundswell of people wanting to restore Maxis and Cambridges. and But I do see things like marinas being restored, which is a kind of very odd... Funny enough, that's the next feature I'm doing for Practical Classics. Yeah, it's strange, isn't and, it? And uh, I should be immersing myself in the world of the marina uh, in the next uh, few weeks. I see, I, I'm seeing more and more of them popping up on eBay and various other places now. So that they're obviously um, there's a marina revival going on by the look of it. It's um, it, it's, yeah, it's kind I think of interesting. There, there are certain cars that have always been the underdog, and certainly anything British Leyland, uh, so Maxi Marina, Allegro, Princess. They've all got a terrible reputation. Mm. Um, not many of any of them left. They're worth very little, and as a result. They're very, very appealing to a certain number of people who you know, want to be anti-style, if you like. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think it's great because I've never hankered after a Marina or a Cambridge or a Cortina. Um, I've, I have limited garage space, and I want you know, to fill it with the cars that, that, that do it for me. Mm. And the 70s saloons don't do it for me. But I think it's fantastic there are people out there who want to save these cars so that when I go to a classic car event, it's not full of the cars that I like and that I own. I want to see all those cars that have, frankly, disappeared otherwise. Yeah. I mean, for my sins, I worked for Zastava GB for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, that's a class act. <laughs> and actually, there's a thriving Facebook group um, and clubs and meets the East. I think it's called the Eastern Block Car Club or something yeah. like that. So yeah. there's Larders, Zastavas. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, funnily enough, the Yugo in the States um, used to be uh, given away at Cadillac dealers as a free car when you bought a Cadillac at one point. <laughs> <laughs> They they were pretty terrible, but they were of yeah. their time. Yeah, it's um, it was a kind of uh, I suppose they were like an, a, a real underdog car at the time, and and they kind of people were protective of those kind of things in East Country. It's the kind of Frank Bruno syndrome, isn't it? What's so. What's really interesting about the classic car scene is that there were some terrible, terrible cars in the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, yeah. and. There are followers for all of those cars now. The cars of today are universally competent. 
there, there's still a pecking order, and there will always be a pecking order. And you've got your Datches at the bottom end, and you've got your, you know, your Kias and your Peugeots and your Renaults and your Citroëns and your Fords in the middle, and then you've got your, your top-end cars. There'll always be a pecking order in terms of quality, in terms of price, in terms of desirability. But even the cheapest cars now are, are very comfortable, they're very well-equipped, they're safe, they're, they're desirable for all those things. And while probably very few of the current crop of cars will be collectible in the longer term, I don't think that people will be collecting the really cheap cars of today for their kitsch value in the future. Yeah. But if you look at the Zasta the Yugos and the Hyundai Ponies and the Austin Maxes, uh, you know, of, of, of yore, then people buy them because they, they were just so terrible, that, well, supposedly, <laughs> at the time. I just don't see that happening in the future. No, I actually was reading an article in uh, Hemmings a few weeks ago about um, the shock and awe of Chrysler minivans appearing at um, classic car meetings now because they're old enough to be there. 31 years ago, yeah. 1984 they came. I was 83 even, I yeah, think. Yeah, and it's, um, people remember them from their youth when they were kids. And uh, they're like, well, I want one of those now because it brings back, you know, brings back a warm and fuzzy memory of when I was a kid. And, I, and, and I that's... That's the, that's the whole thing about the classic car scene. It's very fluid, and I'm not into snobbishness, which is why I have to be very careful about um, denigrating Maxis and Marinas too much, yeah, because yeah. I think it's great that other people own them. I think it's great that people cherish them, and it's, it's great that I can see them. But the thing is that the classic car scene is about nostalgia, and if we're not careful, the classic car scene will die because we'll say nothing built after 1975 is a classic. Mm. We had an episode, I think it was earlier this year, might have been last year now, of a guy who turned up at Brooklyn's in, a, in an Austin Princess and re- refused entry because it wasn't a classic, even though it was 40 years old. And that got a lot of coverage in the classic car press because the classic car press is saying, well, bonafide classic. It's not quite tax-free, but it will be soon because, because it's so old. Um, you know, it's got a very enthusiastic club, um, and these cars have largely disappeared now, and therefore it was a legitimate uh, piece of uh, display material for this particular show. And the thing is that when you go to a classic car show now in the UK, you get a lot of 1990s and even later cars. You get, you're getting cars from the early 21st century mm. because you're getting... Lotus Elises and Mitsubishi Evos and the last TVRs that were built, the last MG Rovers that were built. And you're finding that a lot of the cars that are turning up at shows are still seeing on the road. Audi TT Mark 1s, uh, first generation Mercedes SLKs, yeah. Honda S2000. These are written about in Practical Classics. Yeah. And if we don't embrace these cars and uh, ensure that they are welcome within the classic car scene, then the young youngsters who, who would like to get into the classic car scene are going to feel disenfranchised and they're just going to disappear. And we're going to find that the classic car scene disappears as all the old stages die off. Well, that's a, a good one of my points here. And um, the other presenters of the show are um, a little bit older than me. Um, they're all AACA, ex-AACA board members and, and various other august positions in the hobby. And one of their real worries is the greying of the hobby. They've got a real concern about it there, and they're always trying to um, promote, you know, take your kid to a car show, granddad, take a grandchild to a car show or to a car museum. And, it, and it, uh, do, you, do you see the same thing happening here? It's starting to. The Morris Minor Owners Club, as far as I know, was the, was the first club to do a similar thing. Well, what they did was they set up a young 
uh, enthusiast group. And uh, I think you have to be under 25, and it's thriving. They've got loads of members under 25, uh, one of whom's just started working on Practical Classics. Um, uh, he's 22 years old, and he's now the staff mechanic on, on the UK's most hands-on classic. Um, and, and, and his enthusiasm has come from being in the Morris Minor Club. Um, I've got friends in the Rover P6 scene, and they do the same thing. They try and make sure that kids are involved at every level. Um, I'm personally in the Transport 6 Club, and they're always trying to get younger uh, members involved. They have a young members uh, officer. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't know uh, how he tries to entice people in, but the, the most fundamental issue, I guess, or the fundamental issue that the clubs are up against and that the scene is up against is, is youngsters being able to afford to buy what is probably going to be a second car and insure it. I mean, a Morris Minor, yes, you can use it every day, but there are quite a few cars that you probably wouldn't be able to use every day, and it would have to be a second car. And, you know, if you're 18 or 19 or 20 years old, to buy a, a 1960s Triumph and use it every day might be a big ask. Mm. Use it as a second car, more sense, but you've then got to run two cars, and you've got to house and insure two cars, and it, it's simply impossible for most people. I think also um, one thing we're up against in this country, and obviously when their cars reach a certain age, they don't need to have the MOT test anymore. But in the States, I, I think the standards that you need to keep a car to an older car are far lower than ours. So you tend yeah. to have a lot more cars on the road, but they then tend to be death traps. <laughs> but the, the MOT cutoff is 1960. Yeah. So, you know, if you're running a 1950s car, and funny enough, I, I knew somebody who bought a standard eight or standard 10, I think it was a standard 8, uh, a few years ago to use as an everyday car. And she realized very, very quickly, within days, that it wasn't a practical proposition because the heater, the light, the wipers were so terrible that in poor weather, the car was a liability in her daily commute. Mm. And I know another person, Fenneth, also, also, and she had an Austin A40. Again, the plan was to use that day to day. And again, she realized that this late 50s car was, it just, she didn't need lots of performance. She didn't need amazing brakes, but she needed something that could corner safely on wet, slippery roads, potentially, that she could see out of. So I had to have reasonable heating and ventilation and reasonable wipers. Um, and it just didn't have those things. And again, she quickly gave up on it and ended up buying a modern car to use day to day. Yeah, and I, I think that's the thing. It's it, it, Unless people can um, get some use out of them, because, uh, as you say, to tax, insure, MOT, a second car in this country is really expensive. So, yeah. and, and that's why we're seeing this phenomenon where younger people are turning up to shows, but they're coming in modern cars, and it might be an MG Rover from 2002 and it'll be you know as said an mgzr or, yeah. or a rover 25 or something like that but it's i would struggle to accept that as a classic just yet it's time for a break on the classic car show we'll be right back after these messages don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power america on butterflies rainbows and pixie dust i'm marita noon Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, 
taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, Just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, and I'm speaking to classic motoring journalist Richard Dredge. Because you still see a lot of them in everyday use, not you know not as cherished cars. They're kind of at banger status at the moment. Mm. But so we have a big event here called Pride of Longbridge, uh, which commemorates the, the cars built at Longbridge, which closed down in April 2005. So the event takes place April every year. And all cars built at Longbridge are very, very welcome. And there's about 1,500 cars there now um, each year. And of those 1,500, probably half of them were from the last five, six, seven years of production. And again, those cars, you know, they're still on the drives of my neighbours on the housing estate where I live um, in everyday use. But the point is that they all, they're also cars that are very attainable to someone who's 18 or 19. Mm. They can modify them if they want, um, and they can enjoy them. And if that's what the classic car scene is all about, then that's great. Um, And it doesn't really matter what your car is, as long as you're part of a scene where you can do whatever you want with your car um, and you can just, you know, enjoy using it, then then that's what's happening. And you can buy one of these cars for less than a thousand pounds. You can go to a classic car show in it. You can meet up with your friends. You can modify it if you want. And what we're seeing now is teenagers and people in their early twenties buying much more modern cars, which, frankly, aren't even particularly rare. But, you know, they strike a chord. Again, it might be that nostalgia thing. Mm. Um, and and you, you'll get these youngsters uh, turning up in a car that they want, and that's all that matters. Exactly. And, and you know, as a, as a sort of adjunct to that, the show scene, I think, in this country has never been better. I mean, I probably went to 12 or 14 shows myself this year, so it, it's great, I think, as far as that goes. It's, it's really interesting because Goodwood started off with a breakfast club a few years ago, and now Brooklyn's Prescott Hill Climb, Chelsea Walsh Hill Climb... Um, all sorts of venues around the country do a breakfast club, a monthly breakfast club. Yeah. Um, so we've had this, this huge increase in the number of breakfast clubs, which is basically, for those who don't know, a morning meet where anything is welcome. You just turn up. There's normally a, a burger van on the go, maybe something, you know, a cafe, if, it's, if, it's, um, if there's a cafe on site. You buy 
a coffee and a, and a bun, and you just have a chat with fellow enthusiasts. Now, uh, as it happens, I'm the events editor for, for Practical Classics, um, so I have to monitor all the events that are taking place in the UK. And I have a finite amount of space, and it's getting harder and harder to fairly represent all your choices as a classic yeah, car owner in the UK definitely. because you've got historic motorsport, you've got auctions, out, you've got pub meets, and you've got big organised events, you've got the smaller organised events, you've got somebody 44 years old, and I've been heavily involved in the classic car scene since I passed my test at 17, my driving test at 17, and so I've had 27 years now of, of going to events, and I got to a point where I was doing the same events that I've been doing for quite a long time, and I... I've decided to do fewer of the big static events where you're just parked in the field and talking to people. And I enjoy going to Europe. So this year we went to Belgium to the historic racing. We do the Le Mans Classic. And uh, we take part in French classic car events as well. Uh, this is the club that I'm in. Mm. Um, and to us, is a reason for a journey, but it's the journey that we really enjoy. It's the drive there and the stop, the places that we stop off that we really enjoy. And then when we get to the event, that's just kind of the icing on the cake. Yeah, I, I think things have changed quite a bit for, away from the deck chair sitting in front of your car all day to people actually wanting to use the cars and let people see them. And um, I went to um, took my Herald over to the Retro Festival over at Newbury Showground this year, and I was parked amongst all sorts of exotic stuff. But the thing that was looked at the most was the Herald. People wanted yeah. to sit in there and have a look. Oh, I used to have one of these. Oh, I learned to drive in this. You know, and and that was the yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and this is the thing is I've got into the microcar scene quite heavily in the last mm. few years. Um, and uh, I went to Pebble Beach two years ago. And oh, they had I, a, a I went about five years ago, yeah. They, they had a microcar show as part of the Monterey Classics Week. And what was really interesting was although there were some wild cars there, it was anything under 1,600 cc's. So there was a Porsche 356, for example, um, and there were cars that were one-and-a-half-litre cars that, to us, would be normal family cars. They certainly weren't microcars. And, in fact, of all the cars there, I would say probably only 2 or 3% were what we would perceive as microcars, as Diesel, Messerschmitt, that kind of thing. And certainly if you've got something that's as unusual as that, that will always get a lot more interest than pretty much any Ferrari or Lamborghini. But I, what, I, what I find when I go to an event is it doesn't matter what your car is worth. It just matters how, how unusual it is. Um, the condition also doesn't matter too much. If it's something that somebody can relate to and they maybe haven't seen one for a while or this is a particularly nice example, then they'll gravitate towards it. Mm. And the thing is, most people don't lust after Lamborghinis or Ferraris from a nostalgia point of view because they didn't grow up with them. They grew up with very mainstream cars, and it's those cars which have largely died off now. And, of course, the exotic cars have, have been saved and they're being restored. And if you go to a classic car show, there might be some very, very expensive cars there. But people tend not to gravitate toward them. The small boys will because, you know, they're, they're very excited to see, see something that's very sleek. And, you know, when you're eight or nine years old, you're not interested in nostalgia. But when you get to 30, 40, 50 years old, then, of course, you want to be transported back to your maybe late teens and early 20s. And what I find when I do my buying guides, so I do buying guides for quite a few magazines, and, and several of those magazines like to have a panel on the owner, you know, like a, an owner case study. And pretty much, well, I'd probably say 80% of the time, when I'm writing up the panel about the owner and their car, 
one of the first questions will be, why did you buy it? And normally the answer is, I always wanted one of these when they were new and I could never afford one. And now I've retired or now I've got a, a legacy or I've just got a bit of money put by. I can finally afford one and I've decided to scratch that. And that's yeah. always, pretty much always the driving factor behind a purchase. Definitely. I, I, you mentioned the micro cars. I assume you've run into Paula Cooper, have you, um, at the Bubble Car Museum? I haven't. I know Jean Hammond, who yeah. runs the Micro Car Museum down in Kent, which her late husband started. Oh, you need to um, talk to Paula. I did a recorded interview for this show with her a few weeks back. Okay. And she is the most enthusiastic expert, her and her husband, on micro cars. They restore them there. They've got a fantastic little museum up near Boston in Lincolnshire. Yeah. Well, I, I know who you mean, and I've yeah. heard about her a lot. But Wonderful. <laughs> I know I know the owners of the cars mm. from the there there are a couple uh, of people who run a thing called the International Microcar Rally yes. and uh, under, uh, underneath there are all the different microcar clubs right. and I know lots of people who run People, things like the Frisky Register or the NFU yeah. Register, yeah. Uh, the Bond Mini Car Register, and and um, they're just an amazing bunch of people. They're great fun. But when you look at how awful some of the cars were, you <laughs> wonder how they sold them. And of course, what happened was the Mini came along in 1959, and it was so cheap and practical and usable that it basically killed off the microcar yeah. market almo right. almost overnight. Um, and the Mini just has. So much to answer for, you know, kind of good and bad. Right, well, mm. we've got probably got five or six minutes left. It's been a, the time's flown. I, I wanted to um, get you to give us a little bit of a run through on, about your picture library and the books, etc., that you've been involved in. The picture library in particular is interesting to me. Well, the two of them are uh, very closely linked mm. because what happened was uh, I've done a lot of books over the years. Uh, I've done probably about 20, and the budgets for books are always tight and I would always have to try and find images and I never had enough money and I started doing photography when I left school in the late 80s and I got into doing photography as a hobby before I started writing professionally so what happened was I've been going out and doing photography for some magazines and those pictures would be used once and then probably never used again and I thought well why don't I set up an online resource where people could um, buy that catalogue? And I've been working with other professional photographers over the years, and I said, do you want in on this project? If I set up a website which enables people to download your images high-res, obviously pay for them, would you like me to sell your pictures? And they all said yes. So I had the website built, and we started in 2008 with 25,000 pictures. And we put up about 25,000 a year, so we've got 165,000, I think, now. Wow. And it's grown in not many ways, but it's grown over the years, mainly in volume. But instead of just doing pictures of cars, we now have more general motoring scenes, and we've got more studio stuff than ever. We've got more upmarket stuff. But it's the bread and butter stuff that people really want. They want Vox Vauxhall Vivas, Triumph Heralds, um, Jaggery types, always very popular. Um, we don't do a lot of Ferrari, Lamborghini, Aston Martin particularly. You've got but, some Model A's on there. <laughs> well, and funny enough, one of our photographers had a Model A rotor that he sold yeah. last year, um, and I think he did a shoot of it. Mm, but yeah, it. <laughs> um, the idea behind Magic Car Picks was that I had some pictures which I'd put some effort into creating and would never be seen after that initial use. 
And there was also a demand from publishers, whether that's magazines or books, wanting good quality images of classic cars without having much money to spend. So I married these two things and, and the ground. And we've just, we just keep adding to it, you know, year after year. Mm. Now, next year, it's looking quite hopeful. It's not definite yet, but I'm hoping to set up my own driving studio to go with uh, a couple of others that we have from our other photographers so that we can do more studio photography because there's a real demand for that. And then I'm moving into video a bit at the moment as well. I've been doing video with um, some colleagues in the industry this year. And um, I've got all the equipment. Could coming. you be a UK Petrolicious, hopefully? Well, yes, <laughs> I've got some really nice stuff. The thing is, because I do modern cars as well as classics, mm. and I do writing as well as pictures, I keep very busy. I've got a massive library of books that I've acquired over the years and press packs and brochures. And, you know, I do a lot of research for people, a lot of writing, a lot of photography. To, th to then move into doing video and set up a studio to do studio photography, well... There's not enough hours in the day. No, that's true. But it's a nice position to be in, isn't it? Can you um, let the listeners know the, the website address and um, some of your resources so they can take a look? Sure. So, um, yeah, if you go to Magic Car Picks, uh, all one word, um, and that's the S, so magiccarpicks.co.uk, you don't need a password to download. Uh, sorry, you do need a password to download images, but you don't need a password to see what we've got. So the idea is you can go in and you can see by make and model what we have um, and you can, you know, there's lots of searches you can do. Uh, we have um, a lot of pictures that we've taken, so we hold the copyright. But there's, there's also a big demand for period imagery, and that's where we score over pretty much everyone else in the market. While we don't have the copyright to it, we're allowed to sell it for editorial use. So we have lots of adverts, lots of brochures, lots of period press shots, things that are really hard to find. If you're putting a book together and you want to find an advert for an Austin Maxi, a Jaguar E-Type, um, you know, even a Buick Riviera, for example, uh, something like that, you know, we've got all lots of those um, we, we've got lots of them up we've got lots that aren't up um, and what we find is that people come to us often for the period stuff because other people sell pictures taken in a studio of a Jaguar E-Type or of a Chevrolet Corvette um, or a Ford Mustang and while we have all those things we also have brochure images and uh, period adverts which our rivals don't have and it's about finding that balance so you're making a living you're not selling yourself short but um, you're pricing yourself at a level where people can still afford to buy what you're selling right well I'll uh, have to say goodbye to you there I've taken enough of your time up it's been a bit of really great interview I'm, I'm pretty sure we may speak again I think because I think we probably could have gone on for a lot longer so I think I think I could probably do another 24 hours and, and, yeah, and bore yeah. your readers, sorry, your listeners, absolutely rigid. No, but, no, um... it's been it's been great. <laughs> this has been Kevin Flood for the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. I hope you'll come back and listen again to our tales from the UK. Goodbye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.